This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When the war started, they protected me. Took better care of me than humans would have. They're not people, Maya. It's just programming. Ten years ago today, the artificial intelligence created to protect us detonated a nuclear warhead in Los Angeles. This is a fight for our very existence. Sergeant Taylor, we are this close to winning the war. But the AI are developing a super weapon. Retrieve it. Or they win. At a time when artificial intelligence is a critical topic in Hollywood, 20th Century Studios sci-fi thriller The Creator is now playing in theaters. The story follows John David Washington as Joshua, a special forces agent who is recruited to destroy an advanced AI, which it turns out is in the form of a young child. Joining us in this episode is director, producer, and co-writer Gareth Edwards, whose credits include 2010 Indie Monsters, 2014's Godzilla, and 2016's Rogue One, A Star Wars Story.
So Gareth Edwards, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the movie. Very ambitious movie, I might add. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a bit too ambitious sometimes, I think. At what point did you start developing the idea and uh, and where did the idea come from? It sort of began, I just finished Rogue One and was driving on a basically across the country to my girlfriend's parents in Iowa. And I was just listening to music, looking out the window, wasn't expecting to have any ideas for any movies or anything. And we were just going through this farmland in the middle of the Midwest and there's all this tall grass. And I saw this, what looked like a factory that sort of had this Japanese logo on it. And in my head, I was like, oh, I wonder what they're building in there. And then the other part of my brain went, oh, imagine it's robots or something. And then I kind of went, oh, that would be interesting. Imagine you were built, you were a robot and you were built in a factory. And then you stepped outside for the first time and saw all the grass and the sky. And like, what would you think? And I was like, that's an interesting moment in a film. And then just like went to throw it away because, you know, you have lots of those little thoughts and they don't lead to anything. But then as we kept going on the journey, another idea came and then another idea came and another idea came. And by the time we arrived at my girlfriend's parents' house, I sort of had the whole movie kind of simplistically mapped out. And that never really happens. Normally it takes months to crack a story. And so I kind of thought, ah, oh, there's something in this that it came so easily. Like maybe I should pursue it. Maybe this could be the next thing. I mean, you couldn't have known how topical it would actually be when the movie came out with the focus on artificial intelligence. What were your thoughts on AI back then when you started working on the script? And has it changed? Yeah, I mean, when I, when you like pluck it out of the air, it's like this is going to be the sort of genre of the movie, the sci-fi theme. The To me back then, it was like picking jetpacks or a moon base, you know, or flying cars or something. It was like, oh, this is really far away. Hopefully I'll get to see it in my lifetime, but I, who knows? And it was really more of a metaphor for um, people who are different to us, you know, and the, the other. And, and so the story began that way. But then as you start using AI as your subject matter, there's naturally all these really fascinating sort of philosophical questions that bubble up real fast. Like, what if they don't do what you want them to do? Um, what if you know, you have to then turn them off. What if they don't want to be turned off? All this sort of stuff that we're starting to deal with now starts to kind of become more interesting than the, the, the original reason you were making the film. And so, yeah, there was no way of really knowing that this was going to be a thing. And when you type, you know, Stanley Kubrick even got it wrong with picking 2001 for um, when we'd all be living on the moon. And so I was like, don't, don't try and pick a date. You're going to look like an idiot. And so, I, I, but at some point you have to. So I went for 2070 and I didn't realize... I was going to be more of an idiot because I should have come earlier. Like I should have picked 2023 or something. Who were some of your influences in, in the story, but also in the, the visual style of the film? There's a lot of, obviously, all the usual suspects, you know, James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, Ridley Scott. The, I think the not so obvious ones, I really absolutely love a movie called Baraka by Ron Frick. I think you pronounce his surname. It's this kind of non-narrative movie that's just set all around the world it's if you know corner scatsy he was basically the cinematographer on that and went off and made directed his own feature which is phenomenal film and so that was a big influence i think from a character point of view the films i went and had another look at properly were films like rain man perfect world paper moon uh, lone wolf and cub and i always remember this movie for, i saw a long time ago a british film called the hit with tim roth in it and essentially that movie is they go and get this kind of 
gangster from Spain and drive across Europe with him to take him to the like the mobster boss to be killed. The whole journey, they know they're going to kill this guy at the end and they start to really like him and they get really torn about what to do. And I kind of like that dynamic of, a, of someone, a soldier or someone who's going on a journey with somebody else knowing they're supposed to die at the end of it and what and how it starts to affect them and the idea of a, that being like a soldier sort of parent-child relationship. And it was like borrowing bits from all the different places um, and you hopefully stir the pot enough that it's a kind of a, a, a nice mix and not, not specifically anything. One of the lines in the movie after this is said by a human after the uh, the AIs did something, which I, I won't talk about specifically right now. The human says, we heard that they nuked us because they wanted our jobs. <laughs> that subject of jobs is something that obviously we're talking about a lot today. When you hear that line now, what do you think? That was probably written in like 2019. I think Chris Weitz gets credit for that. Yeah, I don't think AI wants our jobs at all. <laughs> like, I don't think allegedly, if you if you chat with ChatGPT, it seems to not want anything, apparently. It's kind of, it feels like there's some sort of censorship going on. It doesn't have an opinion about a thing, which I don't quite believe. But it is an amazing tool. It is going to disrupt a lot of things. We will get to the side of it. And I think we will be grateful that it happened. You know, just like all the other big technological advances, like cars, like electricity, like home computers, like the internet, you know, it's going to it's gonna change things. It's what we do as a species. We have these big breakthroughs. Everything is different afterwards. And there's a big adjustment period. But we get the other side of it and everything's ultimately for the better, or it feels that way for most of it. And so I think this is going to be another one of those. And I'm personally optimistic and excited about it. Who knows how it's going to play out with all the different fields. But I mean, even now, the two pieces of software that, or at least the main one I'm sort of most fascinated with actually is Midjourney, you know, the one that can create right. imagery. Even when we started this film, I had this idea that it would be great to try and get AI to compose the soundtrack to the movie. And I don't, I won't mention the company because they're, they're an incredible company. I started chatting to them and we they were like, well, what's your favorite composer? What do you want this to be like? And I got a load of samples of different pieces of music, but I mainly used Hans Zimmer because that was a lot of the references I was using. And we basically fed Hans Zimmer into this model or algorithm, whatever you want to call it. And it created like a Hans Zimmer soundtrack to some extent. It was pretty good. It was like seven out of 10 good. But you go to Hans Zimmer because you want 10 out of 10, right? I told this story to him and, and played in the track and he, find, he found it fascinating. Like they, they, they're all very aware of this stuff that's coming. And I think, you know, him and musicians, a lot of them are like the first to embrace digital technology to make music. And, you know, they're very aware of it. And I don't think they feel threatened. The key is to embrace it and understand it and try and start using it as soon as possible, like not get left behind, really. What was fascinating about that process was that if you imagine, like, you know, it's the way these things work in theory, isn't it, is that they have a data set. So they sort of mine lots and lots of examples of like in this case music and learn patterns and all sorts and then try to like generate something based on that and if you imagine feeding into a computer let's just pretend a thousand pieces of music they're not all going to be 10 out of 10 genius pieces of music you know there's some of them will be 10 out of 10 or have moments within them that are beautiful and then other moments like around you know like in the verse the verse might be okay and the chorus 
gives you goosebumps, you know what I mean? And then back to the verse, it's like, yeah, this is okay. I tolerate it because I love what it does in the chorus. And so the, the computer doesn't know what's brilliant and what isn't. It doesn't really have the ability to have taste. And so it sees like this big sample that's kind of some 10 out of 10s, some five out of tens, some six and sevens, etc. And it sort of sees all this and goes, well, what the average here is kind of a seven out of 10. And it gives you that back. And so you get this very generic thing back out. And it feels true of, of a lot of the AI stuff at the moment is it's not groundbreaking special. It's just not bad. It's pretty good. It's interesting. And the key is going to be with these feedback loops they have in the, in, the, in the models where you can train it to say, no, it's this bit specifically. This is why this is genius and not this bit. And if they can start to crack that, like we basically have two scenarios moving ahead. Either the stuff's never going to do that and it's always going to be mediocre. So what's there to worry about? Or it is going to crack that and we're going to have a new Mozart, a new Beatles, a new Shakespeare. You know, and that's exciting too. Like who wouldn't want that? What was it like to work with Hans Zimmer? <laughs> it was a dream come true. Your phone tells you, doesn't it? I didn't realize this, but you can look on your phone and it says the most, the 25 most played pieces of music. And I counted it the other day. Uh, and this is like the whole time I've ever had an iPhone, I counted it. And I think 14 of them were Hans Zimmer tracks, which kind of says something. Yeah, it's a dream come true. He's sort of effortless. The way he works is not you know, I say that actually, and he probably disagree. The most important thing is coming up with these little themes and him and Steve were kind of like worked really hard. Like the most important thing to me was that, was that you could play this thing on a piano. Like it doesn't really matter about all the clever instrumentation and, and what the, the arrangement is and stuff is that you could just hum this tune or play it on a piano and it would affect you. Like you would have an emotional response. And so trying to find that that's like the most important part of the process and trying to find, like, crack that code and find those notes that do that was, like, the most important thing that we spent the longest on. And I feel like they got there. It was it was great. And there was lots of things. I don't understand music. And I was probably very annoying having conversations with them where I couldn't articulate what I meant half the time. For instance, there was I played them lots of different tracks from songs I loved where it suddenly did something super interesting and I couldn't explain what was going on. And they had a term for it, and I've forgotten the term, but essentially the next note, instead of being the actual note that you would anticipate, it went an octave up with another instrument and an octave down with another instrument. And so somehow it kind of implied that note without actually doing it. And there's a term for that. I don't know what it was, but they're like, oh, you really like that. And so they started putting that in the music as well. And and we wanted to do something that I used to joke that I didn't want poor man's Zimmer. Like there's a lot of people that copy Hans Zimmer now and everything's like, you know, like through every movie with this sort of generic soundtrack. And I was like, I really don't want to do that. And we used the, like our references with things like Bach and Mozart and trying to like play, if, like the idea would be like you could play this soundtrack and you wouldn't instantly go, that's a Hans Zimmer soundtrack. Like that was the goal. Mm -hmm. And they pushed themselves left and right a lot to try and achieve that. I think they did an amazing job. This was a very ambitious movie. And as I understand it, the production budget was around 80 million. Is that right? That's what I've heard as well. <laughs> Which really sounds like a very modest number considering how much work had to be done on this movie. How did you pull that off? I feel bad that it cost 80. You know what I mean? You sort of feel like you should have done it a little less, I guess. It was a lot of things, a lot of different processes. We went and shot it in real locations was one. So you were in Thailand, Cambodia. You were all around the world, really, for this. Yeah, we went to eight different countries. We shot in 80 locations just in Thailand alone. I think we traveled 10,000 miles, apparently. 
uh, we went to like the Himalayas we went in Nepal, we went to like volcanoes in Indonesia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Tokyo, everywhere. And essentially, if you keep the crew small enough, the goal was if you can get the crew down to a certain size, the cost of building a set becomes more than flying anywhere in the world. And so the goal was like, we basically, I mean, you know, sat on Google and for every scene in the movie, for every location, try to find where's the place that's most like this in the world. Let's just fly there and, and film that. And then the, the idea being that afterwards, Industrial Light and Magic, would, we would reverse engineer and do the design last. So normally what happens in a movie is you, you know, you do all the concept art. You say, this is the movie. This is, you know, how it's all going to look and the world and everything. So you sit down with producers in the studio and everybody and everyone looks at it and basically says this is going to be a 300 million dollar film we can't do it or you know we need to find more money and so we like we're not going to do that we're going to do that what we want to do is go film the movie first shoot the whole thing come back in to get it edit the whole thing and then design it so actually we instead of because what what you tend to do is is you might design some cool set you know say say 270 degrees of that set shoot the whole thing it costs 300 grand to build you shoot the whole thing either gets cut out the movie or you only ended up filming a close-up of someone walking into a room and then a conversation and you only saw like five percent of that set and so it's like let's go to a real place that looks really like what we'd want it to the closest thing we can find shoot it in camera maybe we'll get away with it maybe it'll look good enough and we won't need to change it and then we'll just digitally augment anything that looks contemporary or not the future and we'll just put we'll add the sci-fi onto that and it was a different way of working that everyone saw the sense in it but didn't want it kind of proof that this could work so we we got given a bunch of money from new regency to do a location scout and so we secretly took a camera and it was just me and jim spencer the producer and i took a camera and a anamorphic 1970s lens so it looked you know cool and shot a whole load of material and then cut that together when i got back and basically begged ilm to do a little test and prove this concept out so essentially we took these frames from the edit and painted them over so you're not painting or designing or building anything that's not ever seen in shot and then essentially use like instead of building the whole cities and things we just projected that painting onto geometry so it gave the illusion of it existing in three-dimensional space but really it's just a kind of a map painting that's like mapped onto a simple model. And we did that a lot with a lot of the world building and it worked really well. Like we didn't have motion capture suits. We didn't have dots on everybody. And so like we, I filmed in temples with monks and stuff and ILM then due to the like, I guess AI or machine learning, whatever you want to call it, they'd figured out ways to track the human body when there wasn't any markers on it. And so we weren't committed to anybody being a robot or being AI. We actually chose who was AI about halfway through the edit with ILM, we sort of... So the actors had no idea at the time then. The key ones did. Like Ken Watanabe knew he was going to be an AI, but there was a hell of a lot of people that didn't. They knew they were in a sci-fi film about robots, but I stopped telling people because I wanted the robots to be very naturalistic and human, you know, in in their behavior. Like one of the most fun things is, you know, when a robot is just sat bored, you know, in the background of a shot, kind of smoking or doing something mundane like throwing it away like that kind of makes the world feel real and and as soon as you tell someone they're a robot they start behaving differently so I stopped telling people so they would act more normally then also there was these massive developments um, in prosumer cameras I feel like the the prosumer market camera technology because it's so desperate to win the professional market they're trying so hard to be innovative that they're doing really interesting things that the top end is not doing 
And so, for instance, like when we did Rogue One, we we tried drone camera filming and there's like mini helicopters, you know, that and it crashed and we weren't allowed to use it anymore because it was dangerous. And and then like a, a year or so later, drones come out by companies like DJI and you can fit them in your pocket and they look amazing. They're in 4K and cinema resolution and all that. And so we embraced all that stuff. And also the the camera itself was just a prosumer mirrorless camera. It's something you can go buy in Best Buy called a Sony FX3. And it, the best thing about it, apart from it being small and very lightweight, is it can film at 12,800 ISO. So, you know, if you remember the days when you had film in a camera, if you had to film in dark rooms, you'd buy an 800. So this is 12,800. So it can kind of film in moonlight if it had to. So it's very sensitive to light. And so once you start doing that camera, you go, well, hang on a minute. The lights we need don't need to be very bright because this is so sensitive. So we had like LED lights. They were so lightweight. You know, you're familiar with them at home is these LED lights that are like battery operated. They're incredibly light. And you go, we don't need light stands anymore. What normally happens on a film set is you start filming one angle and then now you've got to film the other angle and you spend 20, 30 minutes moving all the lights and then you film the other angle. While we were like, well, we don't need to have stands and all that stuff. Why can't we just have a boom arm, like one of those long rods, like the boom operator has, you know, the sound recordist, and but have a light on the end. And so our best boy, Nancy, she was kind of moving the light as fast as we moved the camera. And so we weren't stopping for relighting. It was all very organic. We had Oren on the remote monitor. Because of COVID, we had our masks on, which meant I had a little microphone in my mask. So I could whisper things to people. Oren was talking to all of his crew and, and fading the lights up and down using an iPad. It was just a lot easier than normal. And so there was all these little tricks that just felt like this is surely the way, you know, before I got to make the film, I had one of these tours around a studio that was like a virtual reality studio. And on the wall was a poster and it was just about the process of making a film and it was like you know first the scripts were and then this happens and it was everyone's job on a movie it was this massive like venn diagram and i was just looking at it thinking why have they got this poster up this is a strange thing to do and the guy noticed me looking and he went oh you like the poster i said yeah and he goes that's 100 years old and i was like what and you sort of realize that we haven't changed the way a film is made in 100 years which right. is absurd to me like it's crazy there's all these new tools, all this new technology. And it's like, it's kind of like trying to forget what you're told. This is how a movie should be made and sort of going, okay, forget it existed. What makes most sense? What's the most logical approach? And and starting from there and trying to like create a new way of making a film. Because to me, the process of making a film is as important, if not even slightly more important than film itself in terms of like a seven out of 10 script where you have total control over the process, I think will lead to a better result than a 10 out of 10 script where you have no control over the process, if you know what I mean. Right, right. As I recall, you do have a visual effects background. Yeah, went to film school in 1993 and Jurassic Park had just come out that summer. And it was really clear that computers were gonna change everything. And my flatmate, uh, and best friend at uni had, was studying this thing called computer animation and <laughs> as I was doing film I just kept looking at him feeling jealous like hang on that's where everything's gonna go why am I playing with the camera like this looks like the future and so when I graduated I got into debt and bought a computer and tried to learn the software and thought oh in six months I'm gonna go make a movie with this thing and six months became a year became in 10 years and I just got sidetracked just always putting it off always getting the next job doing visual effects and I was promising myself that at some point I was going to quit and go make a film but never actually doing it. Well last month we were at SIGGRAPH where you previewed a little bit of the creator for the 
visual effects community. Was it fun for you to be back in that environment? Yeah, I mean, I my best friends, the people I sort of tend to like meet up with again after a film is over are people from post. I feel very like similar, like I'm cut from the same cloth. There's a lot of visual effects artists and concept artists and people like that. Um, like everyone's a frustrated filmmaker. You know, anyone that's any good at what they do, they just want to make films and they're sort of doing what they do right now to pay the bills. And so if I wasn't able to direct or make another film and I had to just be happy with my life, I think I would do visual effects. I think it's like weirdly on the graph of happiness. If I drew a graph of when I was most happy and unhappy in my life, and then I drew a graph of when I was doing like animation and then got to make big, massive movies, you'd be surprised the two don't correlate. So let's talk about production. You reteamed with Greg Frazier yeah. for this and had a second cinematographer, yeah. Oren Sofer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, basically, Greg, I love Greg. He, um, when we first met on Rogue One, I had this sort of spiel in my head about how I wanted to make a film and how I didn't want to make a film and what frustrated me about the process and all this sort of stuff. And I was meeting different DOPs and I had this meal with Greg and he sat down and he, before I spoke, he went, can I just say something? And I was like, yeah, sure. And he basically said my spiel to me and he said, I'm you know, frustrated making these sort of films and the way they're made. And he sort of went into every single thing. It was like, oh, you had me at hello kind of vibe where it was just, we were both on exactly the same page about what should be different about making films. And so he's like kind of fellow traveler in that sense, in terms of trying to push all these technologies and things. And then he had to, you know, he won a little golden man for a, a film called for Dune. Dune. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he was obliged to go film part two because of that. So basically we lost him at that point. And so he had been working with or knew, sorry, Oren Soffer, who was kind of closest thing to a protege of Greg. And I met with Oren. He was amazing and cool. And I really liked the work I'd seen of his. So I was like, okay, here we go. Let's try this. And Oren was super impressive. Like essentially, like I ended up operating a lot because of the the way the organicness of the scenes were unfolding with the actors. And so Oren like, has an amazing understanding of light and what to do and what not to do. I think everyone tends to try too hard with lighting and Aaron is like sort of beyond his years in that sense that he understands it's a light touch half the time I remember one of my favorite stories about cinematography that I read a long time ago on Blade Runner which I think is probably the holy grail of cinematography is what they tended to do is they like lit the whole scene and they ended up with like you know eight or ten lights or something and then they would look at it and go hmm feels lit doesn't it doesn't feel special okay turn every single light off they turn them all off okay light number one turn it on 
they'd look at that and go, interesting, turn it off. Light number two, turn it on. And one at a time, they'd go through all the different lights and they'd find the one that just felt the bravest idea. And then they would just turn that one on and leave all the other ones off. And then they might help it with something else, but maybe something else. And keep it really simple. And that always leads to like the most natural and interesting, like brave situations. And so we tried to take that on board and not like go too clever. And we had a load and loads of visual references. Basically, we do Zooms with Oren and Greg in the whole lead up to everything where we would show our favorite images and go, I really like this. This is what I'm thinking, photography, whatever it was, and talk about what led to that image, how that, how we get that, what's going on there, and try to come up with like a little rule book about how to, because you can't like totally imitate everything. You've got to kind of, kind of create a set of rules and then you just kind of play by those rules and hopefully come up with something new with it. But it felt like a lot of similar things going on in the, all the imagery we gravitated to. We basically ended up with the same tricks that we would break out for most scenes. Obviously, you love sci-fi. When you look back on this film and Rogue One, are you proud? And would you like to do more in this genre? I think the day I look back on a film I've done and go, I think it's perfect. I think it's amazing. Is the day I will stop making films. I never feel that way about anything I've done. I just see all the flaws in everything. I think it's the curse of being a filmmaker. And I don't trust anyone who says something nice to me about it. If anyone comes up and says a compliment, I feel like I've done it too. You know, when you bump into someone famous or something and you gush for a split second about their work, you meant it, but you cranked it up a few notches. It's like, I feel like everyone does that. You know, anyone who says anything nice to me is doing that. And so I just don't trust a word anyone says. And so, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing that keeps you going is I would love to make an amazing film one day. Like that's the goal. If I get to the end of my career and I look back and I never did it, like I never look at something and go, I'm so proud of that. That's like a mini masterpiece. I will be disappointed. I don't think I've done it at all yet at all, but I get excited because every time you make a film, you learn more. It's like a gambler in a casino. You kind of leave and you go, I know how to win now. If I just got to go back in, I figured it out. Like, I know how to do the blackjack. I can, I've got a system, you know, and so that gets you back on the train, you know, to do the next one. Do you know what you're doing next? No. And I'm excited about that. I really like not knowing. I don't want to know because it's so all consuming when you make a film plus COVID on this one, it's probably four years. And that's a long time to be beholden to. It's like a screaming child all day long. Like you can't do anything but the film. Like it, if it's spend, you know, you have to go home at midnight every night, get up at eight. And, and it's that day every single day, seven days a week, you know, for four years. Not exaggerating, but it's pretty all consuming. And you can never say no when you have to do something. You know, suppose we have to work Sunday and, and come into work. You know, you, I think we probably didn't have a weekend off during most of the edit. I look forward to the breaks. And also it's a very inspiring time. It's like if your brain is a computer, the end of the movie, I've got to keep everything here for the publicity tour. But a second this is over, I get to like sort of format my hard drive and suddenly I've got this blank canvas and I can start thinking of other things. And I want to kind of use, learn lessons from whatever I've just done. So the next thing like is learning from that. So I like to not know when I did Godzilla, the end of Godzilla, I knew I was going into Star Wars pretty much. And it was like back to back which was like without a break, it was quite full on not having that break. So I think you need input output, like talking about AI, it's kind of how AI works, how the human brain works is you need to have experiences and go off and do things that are not to do with films. And then ideas will just come, I find they just sort of like little butterflies, they just land nearby. And if you don't scare them off, you can go catch them. And it's like, that's the favorite bit. What did you learn making this film? I learned lots of things, I hope. I think everything I'm most proud of in the film are the things we did differently. 
differently. Like we didn't fully, fully go crazy on this movie. Um, it was just when we could, we did things guerrilla or, or a little bit left field to how you're supposed to make a film. And when we did do those things, it worked really well. Part of me wants to just try and push that even further. I think storytelling, you always learn something learning how to tell a story like that's very engaging is like a lifetime school that never ends. And so you feel like I know a bit more about storytelling and I feel like the next story I, I can do better. You know what I mean? Like you always just feel each time, okay, I know how to do this. I'm going to do the next one's going to be going to be right. <laughs> and so, so you just, you never get it right. It's, it's impossible, but it's like cracking a code each time and you sort of learn little tricks that can help you along the way. And it's a lot of it subconscious, like you don't know what you've learned. Sometimes you end up doing a little talk somewhere and people ask you to explain yourself and you go, oh my God, what did I learn? Do I know anything? Do I know what I'm doing? I don't really think I do. And then you have to sort of analyze it and you, and you start to realize that you do have some strong opinions about certain things. Like this one, you know, the first cut of the movie was five hours nearly. And so the game of editing was how to get this down to two hours and it still makes sense. And ironically, it's like when I sat down, I always view stories as circles, not not straight lines. Like a circular thing is a lot easier that way. And I end up putting duration of the film in certain story beats and where it has to land. And then what happens is when you first put the film together or write a script, whatever, it's all those durations do not tie up with what you first wanted them to be. Like this story beat happens 20 minutes after it should. And you think, oh yeah, it'll be fine because we need all this other stuff in the middle because it's important because, you know, whatever reason. And then as you start to construct the movie in post, inevitably all that ever happens is it, without you even like having, you know, being able to stop it, it, it all just goes back to how it should have been in the first place. And there's that whole problem with formulaic films and people thinking there's a formula. But to some extent, there is something going on there because we have an instinctive response. We tend to like agree in general to certain stories and that's good and that one that didn't work that one over there and so there are obviously rules that are going on instinctively and I find that stuff fascinating and like the scientist mind in my head wants to crack it but it's really elusive because it's like trying to explain why music makes you cry it's very hard to write a formula for that but you can sort of understand it you know if you do it enough you can get closer each time We should just note your team of editors included Joe Walker, yeah. who edited Dune, and uh, Hank Corwin, yeah. Big Short. Yeah, I got Joe and Hank, um, which is kind of like an incredible combination. I'm really, really lucky that that happened. Essentially, Joe knew that he had Dune 2 coming up, and we, we just didn't know what date it was going to land on. So it was like, well, let's just proceed until we have more information. And so in, essentially what happened is Joe ended up doing the assembly. So whilst I was filming... Joe was putting the movie together also with another editor called Yobta Burke. That was an amazing feat. It was kind of so crazy how we shot the film that when I finished filming and I got back to LA, we had this sort of five hour assembly, which normally you sit and watch that and you want to kill yourself. And what was interesting was sitting, I watched it at Hank's house. We sat and watched it together. So Hank basically came on, you know, when Joe went off to do June 2. So if you'd said to me before I'd made this film, what are the two best edited movies you've ever seen? I would go, I find it hard to answer that question because I'm torn between JFK 
and the Tree of Life. And they have an editor in common, which is Hank Corwin. And so getting to work with Hank was beyond a dream come true. Like I was so interested in his process and how he works because he's so left field in his thinking. I'm usually the person on a film that's trying to drag everybody off the edge of a cliff and everybody else is trying to shout at me and stop me going. Hank lives down below at the bottom of the cliff and he was pulling me the whole time. And I'm like, I'm like resisting. And so it, it was an exciting dynamic because I'm never normally challenged that much to go outside of my comfort zone. I'm usually doing it to other people. And so that was amazing. So basically the game of the editing the movie to some extent was this game of Jenga of removing pieces and having it not fall apart with the storytelling. And then it was important to me, I'm sort of schizophrenic in my filmmaking taste where I grew up loving Spielberg and James Cameron, you know, and Ridley Scott with classical, like really considered beautiful cinematic storytelling. And the other part of me really likes this sort of improvised, organic, run and gun kind of filmmaking, very chaotic, out of control. And I'm always trying to like fuse those two styles together to some extent. And I feel like this film, I got the closest I've gotten to that kind of balance. And Hank was great at, um, I should also mention Scott Morris. Scott was also worked with Hank as the one of the main editors. And the two of them were really interesting together because Hank's, what I find with anything creative, what happens is you get, you don't want to break something, Like you have something that's working, you don't want to break it. So you kind of sometimes get too respectful of the whatever it is, the material, whatever you're doing, but you don't know the edge or the boundaries of what's possible until you go over them. And so you have to smash something and destroy it to then put it back together and see if you landed where you originally started. And so like Hank is the most fearless person. I've totally smashing something up, even his own work, just destroying it to see if there's another option. And that kind of hunger for finding the unique idea, it's very personal to him. He's like, that's kind of what he lives for, I think, is like, what's the thing we haven't thought of that we would be jealous of if we found it, if someone else found it, you know, and we didn't? What What is that thing? And you can sometimes only get there by just doing crazy stuff, like absolutely crazy things. And he'll do that. Like, he'll just go and do that stuff. <laughs> and Scott's like, he'll do that too. But he's also very pragmatic and very like the responsible adult, even though he's younger than us. And that combination just worked out really well. Everyone was good at each other's job, but it created this very reliable dynamic within the three of us, you know, in that room for like eight months that always created antagonism. We all like had our moments, but you always come out of it at the other end going, I'm so glad we did that today because we would never have found this or that. And that's like the best situations, I think. So with the techniques that you used, what was the toughest scene to shoot? There wasn't like a, a scene that was like, this is the hardest. Um, there was definitely days that were hard, like, I don't know, like shooting in 40 degree heat outside. I was just dying to, you know, in terms of heat exhaustion sometimes. But there was a marathon race, like we shot for six months in eight different countries and traveled 10,000 miles, all that kind of stuff. And that was hard, just keep going. What's funny is when you start every movie, there's a scene you can point at before you even go in and go that's going to be our Achilles heel that's going to be the tough one they're all the same scene it's the scene where you do an exposition dump they're, they're like in act one and it's like and this is the this is what's going on and this is what we need to do right and they're like the high benchmark for that kind of scene 
is like Apocalypse Now terminate with extreme prejudice. And like the scene in Indiana Jones where they they talk about the Ark of the Covenant, you know, where in our movie that's like that is what we call the pool scene. They were like by a swimming pool and Ralph Innocent and Alison Jenny basically explain to John David Washington what's what he's got to do. And it was written and it was very long. And it was like, I know we're going to be revisiting this scene a billion times. And it, you always do. And the biggest thing is it was originally set in John David's apartment, his character's apartment. Oh. And it felt like it would have been quite boring. And I just got very few notes from New Regency. They were incredibly supportive. I really mean that. Like, it was phenomenal what they did with this movie and what they let us do. And they always, like, just backed us the whole way. The one note I did get was, could you think of a way to do that scene with all the exposition, not in the apartment? And it was like, what? And it was like, yeah, we just don't, not it just somewhere else, just not in a room. We've been there, got the t-shirt. We don't want to do it again on another movie. Like, because everyone's done this scene a million times, right? And it was like, okay, fair enough. And so kind of racked our brains and I was like trying to think of different locations. And there was a few and I presented a few. And I was like, you can choose if you want. And everyone liked the swimming pool idea. And so we ended up doing it in the swimming pool. And I actually cut out the end of that scene, which was my favorite part of it, which was he's basically shown that his wife might still be alive and she's a sort of holographic form. And when they turned the hologram off, it was supposed to like disappear into the water and kind of like the blue of the water becomes the blue of her hologram, like she's in there. And right at the end, when they finally leave, John David ran and did a jump and went to splash into the water like to dive into her. And on the second he was going to touch the water, we were just going to cut to the aircraft. And I was really excited. You know, it's one of those things where you're like, I'm, I really like that bit in the scene. Right. And we were just having to compress the film, you know, the whole thing, kill your babies. And, and it was just one of those moments that just outstayed its welcome where it was like, we've got to cut out the dive. And filmmaking's full of these moments where it doesn't make sense. Like we did a test screening, film was two hours, 15 minutes long. Everybody wrote, you get everyone to write, what's your favorite bit? What's your least favorite bit? All this sort of stuff. It all contradicted each other. There wasn't any consensus on anything. And the people who organize these screenings say, you know what this is? This is, it's just too long. Like just got to cut some stuff out. And we had very little time to figure this out. And so I was like, you know what? We had another test screening in two weeks. So we set ourselves the task of like, let's just cut 15 minutes out and just hit play on a two hour cut and see what happens. And so we went through the movie and trying to pull out a minute at a time or 10 seconds at a time is impossible. It's really, really hard. You get through that process, you spend a whole couple of days on it and you've pulled out like two minutes. And so instead we said, let's build it from scratch. So let's just do like a two minute trailer. Okay, now let's do like a 10 minute short film. Okay, now let's do like a 30 minute. And we just put in what you really needed to know. And by the end, got to like one hour 45 and we had the story in there but we were gutted because we missed so much of the stuff we loved. So then without looking at the material, we all had to say what we loved. So like editors and me, like, and we put it all back in and we got it up to two hours. And then we were like, okay, do you miss anything that's left? And we're all like, well, we know what's left. Some of us, you know, you could remember most of it, but you're like, I could live without it. Let's just hit play on this in the next test screening. And we did. And our numbers went way up, like crazy up for like a two week period. And it was really surreal because it was like, normally as a filmmaker, you think more is more, you know, surely they want to see this little clip and this little shot and it'll be better. But it was the opposite effect. It was like the more concise we were and the more efficient the film was, the better the final experience. And even though you can look at these little individual pieces and go, that's my favorite piece. 
it sometimes doesn't deserve to be in the movie. Like it's not about those individual moments. It's about the journey, the whole thing as a whole, like as a whole object. And that's really painful, especially when it's something that's the whole reason, you know, like you're doing that scene to let it go. But that happened a lot. And I think that's like, that's definitely one of the things I learned making this was you just got to let go of everything. Like you've just, second you get in the edit, you've just got to cut that cord with any emotional attachment to anything. Just try and see it like the audience sees it and stop caring about why you did something the way you did it. And, you know, that classic thing of you get to write the film three times, once in the pre-production, once in production, once in post. Um, And we definitely, I'd say, rewrote it, if you want to call it that, in post as well. I know a lot of people have mixed feelings about test screenings. How do you feel about them? Test screenings are horrific. (laughs) Like, don't get me wrong. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about them because they're very useful tools, but they can be so painful. You know, the thing that's most painful about them that no one talks about is that, okay, so you do a test screening and it's with 400, 500 people. They all fill in these massive forms. They say all kinds of things on them, but they tell you like, basically the only thing you really need to look at is where were you bored? You know what I mean? And what didn't you like kind of thing on the form? You know, you basically have got the weekend to absorb all this information and then you start editing again on Monday. And so you haven't got time to read all these forms from 500 people. You just don't have the time. So you have to go straight to the thing they didn't like and read that. And it's the most heartbreaking. It's like someone just stabbing you in the heart all day long. Like it's so depressing just reading everything someone didn't like about your film over and over again, 400 times. What's also interesting is you don't really go, people say whether they thought it was excellent, very good, good, fair, poor. And they say, don't read the people who thought it was excellent because you've already got them. They like your movie, you're done. Don't read the people who thought it was poor. You're never going to win them over. It's not a film for them. So basically go for the people who said it was good. They're like the main people you're after. So you read all this negativity and my poor girlfriend, because she could see what it was doing to me, she started grabbing these forms and just screen grabbing the things people liked and reading them to us like afterwards. And even though it says they recommended, they were like, look, before you go to bed, just read the things people liked just so you can sleep at night. And I did read those and it was really like heartwarming. Films are always divisive, right? Like you try and make a film that everyone's going to love. And I think you're going to make a pretty mediocre film. And so like some people are going to love it and some people are not going to love it. And producer said to me a long time ago, and I think it's kind of true, he said, you can't make a five-star movie. You can make a five and a one-star movie or a three-star movie. You're either going to do something that's different and on the edge. It's going to be some people's favorite movie. It's going to be some people are going to hate it with a passion. Or everyone's going to kind of like it. And, you know, everyone's going to think it's good. And there are exceptions to this rule, but essentially that's kind of true. And I hope we've made the five and a one and not a three, but we're going to find out, I guess. Well, based on what you said before, I'm going to be very careful not to sound too enthusiastic and say this in a genuine (laughs) and subdued way. (laughs) I enjoyed the film and congratulations. And uh, it was very good to talk with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks, Karen. Thank you.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.